Welcome to episode 50 of the Policy Options Podcast. I'm Jennifer Ditchburn, Editor-in-Chief of Policy Options. If you read the headlines about the Canadian economy and jobs, things seem pretty rosy. At the beginning of the year, unemployment was the lowest it had been in 41 years. The number of people in part-time work and in temporary work had remained fairly stable. But if you dig a little deeper into the statistics, a different picture emerges. Certain sectors are seeing an increase in non-standard work, including people who work in food services, education and recreation. Significantly fewer Canadians qualify for unemployment benefits than before, and fewer of us are unionized. Many Canadians who might have a job, even a good job, might be living with great uncertainty around whether they can continue to make ends meet after the next gig or the next contract. Policy Options recently hosted a panel discussion on precarious work. Here's the audio of that event. So precarious work, it's an issue at Policy Options that we cover quite a bit. And I think it's because it encompasses so many interrelated public policy issues. It relates to automation and advances in artificial intelligence. Look at the stories this week about Amazon's new grocery store where I'm not sure that there are any actual human beings working there. Precarious work relates to our labor standards and how we're treating workers. Uh, this week at Trent University, just as an example, there was a rally of food service workers who were trying to bring attention to the fact that a greater and greater proportion of those food service workers are now part-time employees. And precarious work relates to education and retraining and how we're gonna help older workers and how we're gonna help our young people. And I'm sure if you're like me and have children at home, you have a certain amount of anxiety about what their future will hold in the, in the career world. And precarious work also relates to the conversation that's happening around the world about income inequality, including this week at Davos, and whether our social safety nets have holes that need to be mended. So we have a really great panel, super excited about it, uh, who are going to look at the latest statistics and trends and so dissect this issue of precarious work. You have their bios, but I'll introduce them very briefly and I'll ask them to come up onto the stage. Francis Fong is the Chief Economist at CPA Canada. Wendy Vike is the Regional Coordinator of the Eastern Region at the Ontario Centre for Workforce Innovation. And Sunil Johal is Policy Director with the University of Toronto's Moet Centre. So please join me in giving them a warm welcome. So, Francis. I cannot possibly be the first person to tell you that new technology is threatening our traditional notions of, yeah, of what a job or a career is. I'm sure that's, that's a narrative that's, that's been talked about quite a bit. And certainly Sunil will go into this with far more experience than I could, uh, I could muster. But suffice to say at the outstart, that uh, its impact on how we think about jobs is going to be very significant in the coming years. Now, but we've been down this road before. You know, the most recent experience uh, that, that I can, or certainly uh, that I can think of is, is uh, you know, the decline of the manufacturing and the traditional goods producing sector back in the 1990s and early 2000s. What, what I think is different this time around is what we learned from that most recent experience. Now, at that time, we still had a very strong attachment to a particular narrative that labor markets adjust. If new technology is displacing workers, as some workers, these productivity improving technologies would uh, you know, lead to a shift in the labor market, more people would move into those high productive sectors, we'd raise our standard of living, and those people who were impacted and displaced, they would somehow find their way back into the labor market somehow. They'd figure it out. And I think what we've learned is not that that labor market adjustment doesn't happen, certainly it does, uh, and, and certainly uh, how fortunate we are to live in Canada kind of speaks to that, uh, and the wealth that we have speaks to that. Um, but I think what we overestimated was the ability, and certainly the, the economics profession is guilty of this, that we overestimated the ability of the labor market to absorb those people that were impacted by technology and automation. And if I look at what we see now as pulling on that kind of cohesion of society and our economy, uh, those forces find, the, find their roots, at least in part, in the disenfranchisement of some of those groups that are feeling the effects of automation and technology the most. Well, fast forward 20 years, and we're in a very, very similar position. We're on the cusp of a very, very, a very similar position. New technology is now encroaching on sectors that were previously insulated from the impacts of automation, namely the services industry. And as workers are being displaced, 
they, the work they end up finding may be more volatile, more insecure, and offer less protections than what we would envision gainful employment to look like. So it is critical now that we spend time talking about this issue and making an effort to help people figure it out. But we face significant challenges in doing just that. It may or may not surprise you to hear that we do not know precisely how many Canadians are affected by precarious work. And part of the reason is that, like many advanced nations, Canada does not have a formal definition of precarious work, nor data on those people. I mean, what, what do we even call precarious work? Like, when you think about it, what is precarious work? We all have ideas. When I say precarious work, you envision somebody in your head, uh, a continuous contract worker, a part-time worker hired by a temp agency, uh, someone working in a dangerous job, things like that. We all have those ideas, and there have even been a number of very, very good reports produced by a wide range of, of institutions that have tried to define and size the, uh, size the so-called precariat. But they all differ. The definitions differ, our views differ, what we envision differs, and those size estimates also differ. And there's no one, say government, trying to pull all this stuff together to say, here's what we should all rally behind. Here's the definition that we can hang our hat on. There's no one doing that. Not to say that government has not been looking at this issue. That's definitely not the case. As far back as I can tell, Statistics Canada has been tracking this issue as early as the early 1990s, which interestingly, this actually has contributed partly to this issue. They, don't, they weren't ever talking about precarious work. They still don't talk about precarious work. What Statistics Canada tracks, which is more precise, is the rise of non-standard work. Things like part-time employment, temporary employment, and what's called own-account self-employment, which is if you're self-employed and you, uh, you don't have any employees, so you're just working for yourself. Because this is actually what we have data on. We actually have data on all these different groups uh, related to non-standard work. And we know that those working in non-standard work arrangements are more likely to be facing precarious work conditions, simply by the nature of those arrangements. You know, uh, part-time and temporary workers tend to make less than their full-time counterparts. Uh, getting enough hours worked might be an issue. Um, uncertainty around contract renewals, things of that nature. If you're self-employed, there's an inherent volatility to your income. So we know that these people working in these situations are more likely to be, or are at higher risk. So we started talking about non-standard work in relation to precarious work, as a proxy for precarious work. And at some point down the line, the two became interchangeable. This is not ideal, because we're not, from a policy perspective, we're not defining a problem and then collecting data on it to figure out what that problem looks like. We're letting the data define our problem, or the lack of data define our problem. We can easily think of a number of people in non-standard work that we probably wouldn't consider precarious, like uh, a well-off retiree who has a good pension and is working part-time to keep busy, or that high-paid IT consultant that might be uh, working on a very short-term continuous contract basis, but they're making a six-figure annual income. Like, we probably wouldn't worry about those people even though they're part of that non-standard work cohort. The challenge is that we cannot differentiate who truly faces precarious work conditions from those who don't using data that was never designed to capture the nuances of what being precariously employed means. And conflating non-standard work and precarious work is also an issue because it doesn't allow us the focus to design targeted policy that helps those who need it the most. This is a big problem because the existing data do actually allow us to say certain things. It allows us to point to certain groups of individuals that are at higher risk of being precariously employed than others. And in our recent report, uh, we dissected just that. So on this first chart, it shows the share of, uh, uh, of total employment that uh, part-time work and temporary workers hold in the economy. There's a couple of ways to slice and dice this data, but some people might take this data and say, maybe it's not as big a problem as we might think. Maybe non-standard work is not as big a problem as we might think, because for one, the share of, of total employment that part-time work holds hasn't much changed since around 1993. So in the last 25 years, we haven't seen any more people than we did in 1993 working part-time. Temporary work has grown. It's grown by about two percentage points since, the data, since we started seeing the data in 1997. But its share is relatively small, and two percentage points over 20 years is not, is, is not uh, some people might characterize that as not being that big. You know, so there's, there's a couple ways to look at that. But one narrative might be that it may not be as rapidly growing a problem as we might think. But the devil's in the details here. If we, if we cut this data in a different way, we can tell a different story. 
that, that flat, quote-unquote, share of part-time employment that we saw since 1993, in actual fact, most industries, these are the, these are the, this is the breakdown of part-time employment by sector, you can see that most industries have actually seen a decline in part-time employment, except for three. Just three sectors have seen significant increases in part-time employment. That's info, culture, and recreation, uh, education, and uh, accommodation and food. Uh, the three being accommodation and food is, is relatively self-explanatory, same with education. The info, culture, and recreation, uh, the recreation I think is, is relatively self-explanatory as well, and pretty, pretty much anyone in the recreation industry. Uh, but the info and culture relates to things like news media, the entertainment industry, uh, which you might actually, you know, now that I tell you, it actually might make sense that they're bringing on more part-time workers, because that's, maybe that's the nature of the business. But those three industries have seen very, very significant increases in part-time employment. Looking at temporary employment, those same three sectors show up as, as uh, posting the three largest increases in temporary employment. Now, this is disconcerting because two of those three sectors, infoculture and recreation, accommodation and food, pay some of the lowest wages on an industry average basis across the entire country. And educational services, interestingly, pays some of the highest average wages, but has some of the lowest average hours worked. Now, to me, what that is saying is that, so fine, maybe at an aggregate level, part-time and temporary work may not be as rapidly growing a problem as we might think. But we are seeing it grow significantly in sectors that might have more precarious characteristics. So there's pockets of risk going on. There's also kind of a demographic angle that we can point to as well. This chart shows you the breakdown of part-time employment. Uh, again, between that period of time in which it was, the aggregate share was flat, there was actually a significant declines among certain age cohorts and in certain genders, and then significant increases. And the interesting thing about this chart, I mean, there's a couple of things you can point out about this chart. The first is that the increase is almost concentrated entirely among 20 to 24 year olds, uh, which at least kind of lends credence to this notion that young people are finding, very difficult, finding it very difficult to land full-time employment right after graduation. And again, uh, Wendy will probably speak to this with, again, far more expertise than I could. But, uh, you know, uh, but one thing I do want to point out is I've at least had a couple of conversations about these 20 to 24 year olds. And some people will say, well, we shouldn't worry about those people because they're in school. And okay, fine, I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic, somewhat sympathetic to that notion. But the way I think about it, I mean, if we think about the average kind of four year degree, the average person, let's call it, we'll say graduate at 22. And which means 23 and 24 year olds are starting to, are, are starting their careers, which means two out of the five years of that age cohort, you, you do have people trying to make their way into the labor force. The average four year degree is also a very narrow view of what post-secondary education looks like. People, tons of people will get two or three year degrees, college degrees, go to a trade school, what have you, in which case you're starting to include some 21 and 22 year olds. And it's also a narrow, very narrow view. Uh, to think that everyone goes out and gets a post-secondary education. Like, there are plenty of people who only have a high school degree that are trying to make their, trying to get a foothold into the labor market. So the, the instant you start thinking about education from a wider perspective other than a four-year degree, you realize that more and more people are trying to make it out there, and, and the options that they're seeing are more non-standard in nature, which I think we should be concerned about. But obviously there's, there's kind of, there, there's an issue with how to interpret this data, which is, which is clearly the case. More to the point, we are actually seeing part-time employment rise among people who are more higher educated as well. So this data shows the breakdown of uh, the percentage point change in the share of part-time employment among 15 to 24 year olds by highest education achieved. And you can see the largest increases are happening among women who uh, either have at least a high school degree or some post-secondary education. So there's, there's real concern that we, need, that we need to be considering here. The last chart I have to show you is uh, on temporary work, and it's, it's a bit of a mixed bag here because what we're seeing is, what, so I broke it down by age cohort, by gender, and also by type of temporary employment. Temporary employment gets broken down into term and contract, casual employment, and seasonal employment. The basic conclusion of the chart is that what we're seeing, we're seeing temporary work grow among younger women and older women the most, and younger men and older men to, to a significant degree, but to a lesser degree than women. So you're basically seeing it happen, or, or a, a gaining prominence among certain, uh, uh, among certain groups. I think what I want to get at here, ultimately, the point is, we cannot say with certainty whether or not the, the, all the people in this jumble of data are actually precariously employed. Again, we get back to this point of, they're in non-standard work, but we don't know for certain 
whether or not what they're facing is precarity. That's pretty much the general conclusion we can make. My point is, is that we have learned all that we're going to learn from the existing data. We need better data at this point. And we haven't even talked about own account self-employment on which there's even less data than part-time and temporary employment. There's some, but there's, it's, it's not that as fulsome as, as, uh, as what we can talk about on the other side. What we need now is a formal definition, one that we can all rally behind and data on the issue. And we're calling on government to do just that, to bring together the experts necessary to land on that definition and provide funding for Statistics Canada to start tracking this stuff. Canada's labor market is on the cusp of great change and precarious work may very well define our future. Yet even today, we don't truly know how many people are affected. I think it's time we change that. Thank you. I'm going to be talking to you today a bit about the technological um, implications of uh, what we're seeing in areas like artificial intelligence and automation. And this is all stemming from a report we wrote back in November 2016 called Working Without a Net. It's available on the Moet Center website. But essentially the, the crux of our analysis was most of the policies and programs that are intended to support Canadians, intended to support <coughs> workers, uh, are very intimately tied to the notion of a standard employment relationship. Uh, because most of these programs were designed in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, uh, when the labor market looked very different than it does today. It was basically assumed that one person, generally the, the husband in a family, would have a full-time job with benefits. That would be, uh, the, and those benefits would be enough if the family encountered any medical dental issues or anything like that. Uh, you'd have a pension. Uh, and if you fell out of work, it would be very rare and government programs would kind of step in in that rare occurrence to help support you. Uh, but I think the reality is we're not in that environment today and we're actually going to need to radically rethink our social programs and policies uh, to reflect today's uh, new world of work. Uh, so there's just three quick longer term trends I wanted to touch on in terms of the labor market and then I'll get into some of the, the tech stuff. Uh, in a minute. So those three things are unequal prosperity, the rise of precarious work, which as Francis has uh, very clearly outlined, there are some very fuzzy definition, definitional issues to address. Uh, and then very quickly declining unionization. So I mean, the idea of unequal prosperity, I don't think is a very new one to most of you. I mean, the, the notion that the 1%, the top 10% are getting outsized gains of uh, wealth as it uh, is generated in the economy. I mean. There are lots of different statistics and figures you can cite to support this notion. I mean, there's just one here on the slides of the top 1% of earners in Canada accounted for 37% of overall income growth between 1981 and 2010. The, the chart on the left shows you the Gini coefficient, so a measure of inequality in societies. And it's not actually been going up too much in the last 15 or 20 years in Canada, but it's kind of incrementally continuing to inch up in a direction that's probably not uh, ideal for most. People. The other thing that we need to think about is the idea that wage growth is really a challenge for many people today in Canada. Uh, researchers at MIT have termed this the great decoupling. Historically, when the economy was growing at 2, 3, 4% a year, people could expect their wages to grow in lockstep with that uh, broader economic growth. That's for too many people today no longer the case. If you look at uh, workers in Ontario, if you're not in a management position or a professional position, you have seen zero wage growth over the last 20 years in Ontario when adjusted for uh, inflation. And obviously, during that 20-year period, your costs have been going up and up and up in terms of housing, childcare, food, uh, and energy. So for too many people, their, their paycheck is staying the same, but all of their other costs are continuing to uh, rise, and that's again a challenge for many working Canadians. We've already touched on the rise of precarious work, and as Francis has noted, there are a lot of challenges around defining what that uh, means, but if we look at things like temporary work, part-time work, they have been on the rise. Non-standard work, which I think it's not a perfect proxy for precarious work, but there are definitely is a strong correlation. Non-standard work in OECD countries has accounted for 60% of employment growth uh, since the mid-1990s. So the Ontario's Changing Workplace Review actually looked at this issue and they tried to dig more deeply into what exactly is a vulnerable worker uh, in the province of Ontario. And actually they found that roughly 30 to 32% of Ontario workers are <coughs> classified as vulnerable. So having characteristics like uh, low wages, no benefits, etc. 
research by the United Way uh, and McMaster has found that roughly 50% of jobs in the greater Toronto and Hamilton area have elements of precarity. But again, there are some challenges with that in terms of some, some people who are in casual or temporary employment may actually be making very good uh, living. So if we're looking at the, even at that 30% figure, I mean, that's, that is a concern, I think, for policymakers. In terms of precarious work, what does it mean? I mean, these non-standard jobs that we're talking about tend to be lower in wages. I mean, there's about a $10 per hour differential between a non-standard worker and somebody who's engaged in a standard employment relationship. Uh, the figure on the left shows you folks in standard employment tend to have much greater access to things like medical insurance, dental coverage, uh, and employer pensions than the much smaller bar which uh, is next to them, which is folks who are engaged in non-standard forms of employment. And then obviously there's this overarching issue of declining unionization. So who's standing up for these people who are in vulnerable positions, who are engaged in precarious forms of work? Increasingly, it's not unions because these people are not in positions that are entitled to union representation. And there are lots of different reasons for that, but uh, I think you could point to uh, corporate strategies around things like outsourcing, franchising as a, as a major driver of this type of of this type of situation. So that's kind of what's been happening. Now we can start thinking about what's going to happen when we start looking at some of these technological uh, trends. So we'll very, very quickly touch on a couple of these things, including the unique nature of the digital economy. I mean, increasingly we're talking about a very small number of firms in the global economy which have massive amounts of power in terms of economic concentration, but also uh, granting or denying access to particular sectors uh, of the economy. If you think of a company like Amazon, $600 billion valuation, if you want to sell or buy something online in many parts of the world, that is pretty much the one place you're going to go. I mean, if I started up senileretail.ca tomorrow, probably none of you would ever go there, much to my chagrin. I spent a lot of time setting up a fancy GeoCities website, but the reason for that is something we call network effects. The more people who are on these platforms, the more valuable those platforms become to users and to non-users. And those network effects can be very powerful in terms of crowding out new uh, competitors. So we're gonna be in entering a world where there are significant concerns around issues uh, such as monopolies and control of markets by very particularly small in number platforms, but very large in terms of valuation and power. I mean, we've got all kinds of challenges in this new world when you think about people who are driving Ubers, for example. Are they employees? Are they independent contractors? These platform uh, economies, these gig economy uh, models are often intentionally finding gray areas between what is personal, what is commercial, and leveraging that for their own profitability. How do governments keep up with that? Uh, reality. Now, the big topic that everybody's talking about and excited about these days is automation. It's artificial intelligence. Are the robots going to come and take my job? Hopefully not, but we, we don't know. Uh, but this chart, I think, is a very instructive one for a number of different reasons. This shows the growth uh, in jobs in the United States over the past 35 years or so of four different categorizations of positions. And the story in Canada is pretty much the same. Not quite exactly the same, but very close. Uh, just very quickly, so the red line at the top, those are non-routine cognitive jobs. Those are the kinds of jobs that have been seeing significant growth over the last 35 years. And if we project forward, and you think about things like artificial intelligence, what can we program computers to do well and what can we not program computers to do particularly well? We can program computers very well to do things where there's a discrete set of rules. We know that there are five, 10, 15 different elements of a job. It's kind of like a decision tree. If this, then this. If this, then this. That's not a non-routine cognitive job. I mean, most of the people in this room, if I, I know a lot of you work in government or in kind of the policy world, you would fall into this group. I mean, you're using your mind, but what you do changes on a very dynamic and day-to-day, hour-to-hour basis, high degrees of judgment, high degree of uncertainty in what you're going to be doing on a particular day. So those jobs are increasing. And if we project forward, you can probably assume safely they're going to likely continue to increase. And then the line at the very bottom, uh, which has also grown fairly steadily, as you can see, those are non-routine manual jobs. So again, you're an electrician, you're a plumber, what you do day to day is going to change. One day you're wiring a house, then you're going into a school and fixing some kind of knob and tube wiring issue. Again, how do you program a robot to do that? 
it's very challenging for people to, to think about that right now. I mean, maybe in 20 or 30 years that will change, but odds are that'll be, the, those will be the last jobs that will be affected. The jobs in the middle where you've seen stagnation and in fact a little bit of a dip, those are the routine jobs, routine cognitive, routine manual. So routine cognitive, maybe you're a telemarketer. You have the same kind of script in front of you every day. These are the, these are the questions you're gonna ask somebody. If they say this, then you ask this question. Those are the jobs where there's going to be automation, there's going to be uh, job loss. Same for routine manual jobs. If you're a forklift driver and you drive pallets of material from one end of a warehouse to another, there are already machines that can do that. If you go into any of Amazon's fulfillment centers, They've got hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands at least of these robots that are delivering pieces of packaging and uh, goods between different parts of the warehouse. And there are lots of different ranges about what automation is going to mean for the economy in terms of job loss. I mean, ranging from as low as 5 or 9% all the way up to over 40%. If you apply those numbers to Canada, you're talking 1.5 to 7.5 million jobs uh, that are at a high risk of being eliminated over the next 10 to 20 years or so. And again, that doesn't mean new jobs won't be created in that time. Obviously, uh, they will be, and that's always been a part of our economic growth. Jobs are eliminated and new types of jobs uh, are created. But you can imagine, at the high end there, if we're talking about nearly half of jobs in Canada that exist today being eliminated within 10 and 20 years, what are the repercussions of that in terms of retraining uh, people, particularly adults, uh, who are thrown out of a job. If you think of autonomous vehicles, 500,000 people in Canada <coughs> drive for a living. And obviously the technology there is already really good. I mean, companies like Google uh, are testing autonomous vehicles in places like Arizona, California, and Ontario. Uh, the technology is pretty much there. There's some regulatory issues, there are some other issues, but you could easily imagine a world where in five or 10 years, autonomous vehicles are on the road in a fairly significant way. What happens to those 500,000 people in Canada who drive for a living. If you've been a bus driver for OC Transpo for 20 years, how do we retrain you for a different type of career? What are the supports in place from government and or your employer uh, to prepare you? And then the last thing I wanted to touch on was this idea, which I think Francis has really kind of covered quite well. There's, it's a very mixed bag in terms of who's engaged in independent work, who's engaged in the gig economy. McKinsey did a study two years ago looking at what they classified as independent workers, and they found that 70% of workers in this space, I mean, this is more the gig economy type thing, so the Uber driver, the person who's delivering stuff uh, on those type of platforms, 70% of those people do this type of work as a preferred choice. They like it, they like the flexibility, they like the supplemental extra income that they're earning. But 30% do this out of necessity. They don't really have an option. This is what the only, the only thing on the table for them to earn money. So when we're thinking about policy responses, obviously uh, we need to focus on those people who are doing this out of necessity by and large. We're not so worried about the person who's happy with what they're doing and, the, and, they, uh, and they enjoy this. We'll talk some more about policy responses, I think, um, at the end, but I think the, the general message I have for you today is even if we hit pause on technological progress today, we have some significant work to do to uh, refresh our social architecture. If technological progress advances as some think it will, then we have much more than some significant work to do. We need to radically rethink all of the social programs and supports we have in place today. So look forward to engaging in a discussion with you on this, thanks. Thank you. My favorite part of career exploration and working in workforce development is uh, looking at labor market information. And most people will tell you that labor market information is right only about 50% of the time. So other people will say, well, why bother? Why bother exploring? Why bother trying to predict? But the reality is things are changing very rapidly and we can help people be better prepared for the world, the future of the world of work. The gig economy is here to stay. So at OCWI, our goal is to help prepare people. And so looking at the, at the future of the world of work, we, we like to help our job seekers and those who are supporting them become more informed about the fact that we are in the fourth industrial revolution. And every time there's been an industrial revolution, things have changed, there's always been panic, oh no, the sky is falling, jobs will be lost, and yes, jobs will be lost, but new ones will also be created. So my passion after 25 years as a career counselor and in secondary education, uh, helping people make those informed career choices, has really been finding a way to say, this is what might be on the menu. Here's our best guess, and here are some 
what we think are educated decisions thanks to many of the experts who are doing great research in the field. I, my background has been very much supporting young people. For many years that was youth at risk. Um, but certainly uh, secondary school students, post-secondary. But I also have a passion for mature workers because I have so many of those folks coming to me and saying, I've, I've been laid off, I need to find something new and I don't know what to do. My heart would break when a 55-year-old would say to me, I've just been laid off, I have two kids in university, I still have a mortgage to pay, what, what, what's there for me? And it's a challenge in our system when a lot of these folks who manufacture, I know GE in Peterborough is uh, in my territory, I'm Eastern Ontario, and the community is in crisis because General Electric is going to close, and there are people who have been there for many, many years. My fear for them is that they will write out their severance package, then their employment insurance benefits, a couple of years will go by, and then they will reach out to the services of an employment counseling centre. So I, my hope is that we can get to those folks much earlier in the process so that they can make informed choices, just like my hope is to get to the students who are in grade eight, making their secondary school, high school career uh, class choices, and, and there, there's a lot of pressure on them to make those, those choices, those life-changing decisions now. Um, I should preface all of this by saying I do look at this through a very optimistic lens. I am very excited about the future of the world of work, and I, and I like to share this message because we do know that one of the best uh, predictors of, of someone's career trajectory or having a positive career is their level of optimism or hope. So I think it's really important for us to share as much good news as we can, particularly for our young people who are making those career choices. 65% of today's elementary school children will work in jobs that don't exist yet. I remember my family having a party line on our telephone, <laughs> let alone cell phones. And so if we look at the amount of change that we've seen in the last few years and the number of organizations that didn't exist five or 10 years ago. Things like Uber and Shopify and autonomous vehicles. I think getting ready for all of this is really important. And also to look at the job loss in a very realistic way, but also to be positive and open-minded about the other jobs that, that will exist. If we think about autonomous vehicles and the 500,000 people who are currently driving for a living, there will be job loss there. But when we think about the domino effect, of what other things will be created as a result of this new, um, new invention. And my, I'm very, very passionate about organ donation, and I think there's panic right now. With self-driving cars, there will be far fewer car accidents, which means organ donation will, will hit a crisis point. We won't have enough organs because the majority of organs come from motor vehicle accidents. So how can we then look at the workforce changing around artificial organs? We know that there are, they are exploring now organs that are coming from other species. So how can we look at what the new things will be that will evolve out of the, the innovation that's happening in the world of work now? People will need to function as entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, and intrapreneurs. So I think most of us know what an entrepreneur is and a sol somebody who wants to have their own business and have it grow. A solopreneur is somebody who wants to work independently, wants to have their own business, does not want to ever have employees or staff. They just want to do their own thing. Intrapreneurs is a new breed of employee where someone acts and behaves and thinks like an entrepreneur, but within an, for another employer or within a larger employer employment setting. So having those skills to think like an entrepreneur on behalf of your employer and what we're seeing is that those are the people today who are being promoted, and those are the kinds of skills employers are looking for. For me, a big part of that is financial literacy. I know that if, if, if we look at the predictions, and there are many, many predictions around the number of careers people will have, a young person might have today if they enter the workforce. And some of the statistics vary quite a bit, but it's as many as 10 to 17 jobs for a young person by the age of 38. So how can we be prepared ourselves for the future of the world of work and to think about our careers as a business? There's an increasing emphasis on soft skills. So as Sunil mentioned, with the impact of automation and, and AI and ro robots taking away those routine jobs, the robots don't have necessarily the compassion and the ability and the resourcefulness and the ability to pivot and change and think quickly. Similarly, if we think about the career path that many people are on where it's very linear, they, they, they want to do that and retire at 65, we have to rethink the world of work for our mature workers as well. The retirement age of 65 was set here in the 1930s 
when life expectancy was 62. So we didn't expect Pete to have all these people retiring um, or, and, and not working. But now we will see people have many career paths and maybe work in a while at their, what they were trained in and then take a year and do something that is more in line with their values and their volunteer work and then maybe do something else for five or six years and then try that new thing that they've always been wondering about or maybe I want to become a yoga instructor. And the reality is people will move and swim back and forth through the career path and in the home stretch because life expectancy is increasing now. There, there are many people who will live well past 100, and today's, a child born today, I'm hearing predictions, will live to be somewhere up to 104 or 110 even. So that's a long time to be out of work if you did retire at 55 or 65. So we think about what will be people's legacy careers. So I do get very excited about the future of the world of work because I, I think people will have choice, but I think we also need to be very mindful of making sure people are prepared. The unprecedented change is here to stay. If we think about the global world of work, where I might be working today from 2 o'clock till 10 o'clock tonight because one of my teammates is in Hong Kong and somebody else is in Brazil and somebody else is in Hawaii, that global world of work means that work won't be Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. We'll move away from that factory-based industrial model and it's okay then to be walking your dog at two in the afternoon if you're working at 10 o'clock at night. So our values around work need to change as well. Because of the globalization of the world of work, we need to be polite, empathetic, and we need to have uh, cultural sensitivity and cultural awareness. And I think that that will come, but because of the way the world is changing, but I think we also need to change our education system to make sure our young people today are acquiring those skills. One of my favorite things to talk to young people about is becoming a polymath. And they ask, what is that, Wendy? And it's somebody who's well-rounded at a bunch of different things. Skilled, really well-rounded. I'm so happy to see the introduction or the return of Katima Vick. And I'm so happy to hear when a young person says to me, I'm going to take a gap year. And I have so many parents who panic at the words gap year. They're so worried that their child will take time off and not go back to school. But the reality is anything we can do to help our young people become more worldly or for all of our job seekers to help broaden their experience in the world. And things like traveling abroad. Um, what's, what's interesting to me is that um, well, prior to joining OCWI, I was with the Pathways to Education program. We launched it in Kingston, Ontario. There are now 18 sites in Canada. We did a study with a PhD candidate at Queen's University with our students. These are young people, high school students, coming from families living multi-generational poverty. Many of them were coming from families where no one had worked ever in the family. Lots of dependence on different forms of assistance. So we interviewed the students to say, where are you getting most of your career advice from? And these are kids that are having guidance counselors. They were part of our program. Across the board, it was still their parents. And it was parents telling them, don't go into the skilled trades. You don't want to get your hands dirty. Don't go into blue collar. You must go to university. And, and not in any way exploring the many, many options that are out there and the many different careers and how things will change. And so if we can reach our parents, and if we at social settings can be talking to one another about the fact that taking a gap year is not necessarily a bad thing, and that education for today's young people will be re-education and re-education. And for our mature workers, to encourage them, for our education, uh, educational institutions to welcome them and embrace them and provide that kind of training for the people who are getting laid off that's really meaningful and get to them earlier in the, in, in the process before maybe they get laid off. If we can create a culture of lifelong learning, it will be benefit everyone. When we talk about the future of the world of work, I think it's really important to also include employers. And the reality is we do have employers who are forward thinking. There are many, many forecasts about a critical labor shortage, globally, nationally. I think if we can shine a light on those employers who are being forward thinking and progressive, it will provide some optimism for everyone. Um, the laws of supply and demand, I think, are already causing employers to be proactive. There are manufacturers in Ontario who are actually having dark days where they have to shut down their entire system and not operate for a few days because they don't have enough staff. We, um, at OCWI, right now we have about 50 different research projects underway. We have a great team of um, 
of researchers, and we work with our community stakeholders to explore innovative practices. So we look at ideas or things that are already happening, and, and we let the organizations uh, operate new programs and foster those ideas, and we put the research around it. It's amazing to me the number of people who are focusing on manufacturing. And, and we're hearing on one hand that yes, manufacturers are laying off, but we have others who can't find the help that they need. So some of them are being very creative. There's an aerospace um, manufacturer in Peterborough, Ontario, who is really having a hard time finding staff. And they, they, they were actually talking about closing down. And instead what they did, they welcomed snowbirds. So there were lots of folks in that community. It's a, it's a popular retirement community, the Quarthas and everything else. But there are people who live there during the summer months, but they go to Florida for winter. Similarly, there are many people with young families, small children, and so this employer has worked out an arrangement where he hires the snowbird during the summer months, and that snowbird in some cases might have been at the local hardware store or Tim Hortons or Walmart, but they, and then they go to Florida for the winter, and then in the summer months, the, the parent with young children, um, they work during the winter time so that they can be off when their kids are out of school. So seeing employers who are being quite resourceful and thinking of new ways to attract and retain talent, um, I think those are the people we need to shine a light on. And I think if we do that, other employers will catch on to the fact that, wow, if they're doing that, maybe I should start thinking about how I'll attract and retain talent. We're working with quite a number of employers in the Lindsay area right now, which is on the fringe of Toronto, and they lose a lot of their talent to the GTA, and we're helping them rewrite their job descriptions. They've been cutting and pasting the same posting for 10 or 15 years with the same requirements without having thought about it. And they're eliminating a huge pool of talent. We're also working with them to look at prior learning assessments, particularly for newcomers in Canada, who have great skills and experience, but because they don't have a particular piece of paper, employers are ruling them out. We heard about Starbucks, and um, you know, if, there are many employers who are looking at ways of um, attracting talent and part-time work and offering benefits. We're starting to see a shift there. We're also starting to see those employers who are recognizing that the soft skills are more important. There are engineering firms in the Silicon Valley who will only hire liberal arts grads, and they teach them the engineering skills. So to create um, an, an environment and a climate where employers are encouraged to be forward thinking. And so often it's just a capacity issue. They're so busy focused on their business or manufacturing whatever their product is that they don't have the time or energy to step back and, and look at the big picture. There's some that are being, others that are being progressive. Mitsubishi in the Mississauga area um, was having a hard time finding um, manufacturing for their aerospace industry. So they finally put an ad in the paper and said, we want to hire youth. You do not need a high school diploma. Come join us. We'll train you, they do the training, and if they like you and you like it, because manufacturing is only for some folks, then they take you on permanent full-time with benefits. So employers are finding their own ways to recruit and they're getting out in front of what I think will be an issue to attract and retain talent. So I think with um, our employers and, um, and our uh, educators and our um, employment counseling centers, there is reason to be optimistic. And I hope that you'll spread that optimism. And I think the best that way that we can do that is to stay connected and to continue to communicate around this topic. Thanks. Thank you. So Francis, I'm going to start with you and ask you if you had a wish list for StatsCan, and we have a few people in the room from, <laughs> from that department, what would you want? I mean, what kind of data would you like to see? And how, how do you get to that granularity? It seems like almost an, an individual level to figure out whether someone is actually a precarious worker yeah, or not. It's, it's, a, it's a good question. It kind of gets at the, the heart of the issue. I mean, if, if we think, like, you know, in, in our report, we kind of propose a starting point for what, how you would define precarious work. And you have to anchor it in something, first and foremost. I think, you know, if we anchor it in some sort of concept, everything kind of falls out of that. And for me, it was like, well, well, if you have all these different people facing different circumstances, like, where is the commonality? How do you generate that commonality? And if, if you think about the uh, continuous contract worker who is, who doesn't get their contract renewed and they can't make rent, or the part-time temporary worker that, you know, has a tough time putting food in the table, or the person, the low-income precarious worker who, you know, is in an abusive job but can't speak out because it's the only job they have, it's, it's always that they're at the margin. They're at some sort of margin. And that margin, for me, is they can't, they don't have enough to be able to 
plan and save for the future. And that concept, I think, should, is, is what should anchor our notion of, of what a precarious worker is. Like anything, you know, if you are at that margin, you are at risk of something. And then what's on top of that is all the other factors related to that, things like income volatility, um, un uncertainty with related, if you're a contract worker, uncertainty related to contract negotiations and things like that, that such that anything that happens can push you under that margin and suddenly we're, we have an outcome that we don't, we don't want to see. So you could have a really great job, but it could be still precarious? Exactly, so, so, so the, and that's a great point. That threshold might not be static. We might say, hey, here's the threshold for some people, and even a little bit of volatility can push you below that, but that threshold should probably vary with how much your, your, your income varies over the course of a month-to-month of -month basis. So you know, the two should, should, should definitely be related uh, in, in, a very, in a very tangible way, so, so that's a great point. Uh, well, we, you know, we've always had seasonal workers, we've always had part-time workers. Yeah. What is it about now that's different uh, than before? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you did address this a little bit in your, in your um, presentation, but yeah. I think as our mind goes to people who work in uh, the fisheries or uh, people who are sessional lecturers and so on, is it just that there's more people in, in particular sectors that are affected than before? That's a good question. And I, I think it's a, it's a tough question to answer as to why our perception of this issue may be worse. That, you know, we've always had part-time workers in Canada. Like, why now? Why do we worry about them? Um, but, but I think it's also the nature of how jobs are, are, are changing. I think, you know, maybe back then you could have a part-time job where you earned a decent wage and you got benefits. And, and you know, maybe the, the things have changed in a way that may, maybe that's not feasible anymore. I'm struck, uh, the Ontario government actually just released data, I think it was yesterday or two days ago, about starting wages for uh, people who, who graduate with different degrees. And the only one that's been able to sustain the same real wage over, over the years has been engineering. Everybody else has seen a decline for, 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 for different degrees. People with a business degree, people with a humanities degree, social sciences, life sciences, everything has seen kind of a deterioration. So, uh, you know, there's, there's been that pressure, I think, uh, even with, with higher educated people, certainly those pressures would be, would be uh, you know, would be the case for part-time. And so kind of coming back to this, this notion of what I would want to, what, what I would want to see, um, based on this definition, I think, I think a definition of precarious employment should have a number of, of kind of components to it. First, you have that earnings threshold, and then you have everything beyond that. You have, how do you capture income volatility? How do you capture uncertainty? How do you capture, like Sunil pointed out, how do you capture preference? Uh, you know, certainly these people are, you know, if we say they meet the earnings threshold and it's, they have a certain amount of volatile income, well, maybe their, their partner uh, has a stable high earning job and so maybe they're not precarious, uh, even though individually they might be precarious, they're not actually precarious. How do you capture the, you know, that fact? Uh, and lastly, how do you capture this notion of, if I'm in an abuse, like, you know, for in particular low income workers, how do you capture this notion that I have a fear of speaking out about a, an abusive job? I, I think that needs to be part of it, even though that's not my particular area of expertise, I still think that needs to be part of it. And, and, and my wish list would also include that you cut that by, by demography, by, by gender, by age, by, by race, by, um, by immigrant status, by aboriginal status, because we know there's, there's evidence out there. For example, the Law Commission of Ontario has already kind of put out this report a number of years ago that said racialized workers and particularly women are, are, high, are at higher risk of, of precarious work. So certainly those, those demographic aspects have to be there on top of those four or five aspects I, I kind of talk about. So Wendy, uh, how do you, you talked about some of the skills that I was very interested in that about uh, being polymath, being, uh, having those soft skills. And I, I mentioned that there was a big uh, career advising uh, conference just this week in Ottawa with thousands of people from across Canada. So how do you prepare young people? Uh, I was struck also by your, your statistic that 65% of jobs uh, for elementary age kids, won't, don't, they don't even exist right now. How do you prepare them for jobs they don't even know are gonna exist? And is, should the focus be on a base set of skills rather than the specific ones that they'll need for a particular position in the future? Well, I think it's um, the more well-rounded we can um, help our young people become, the better, because without knowing what those jobs are, I think it's the, the ability to deal with change, certainly. Um, being resilient, you know, letting, letting our kids fail so that they learn to bounce back again. 
um, and, and giving them experiential learning opportunities that take them outside of their, sometimes it's a video game world, <laughs> I worry about that. I'm, I'm, sometimes I'm heartbroken when I talk to young people and I say, so, and I don't ask them what do you want to be when you grow up because I don't like the question, but it often comes up and so often they say video game designer, mixed martial arts fighter or something like that. I'm not even really sure what that is. Or it's rock star or something like that. So, and I, and I love that spirit and if we can foster that. But um, I think that we, to encourage our parents to encourage their children or create opportunities for their children to have those sort of life broadening experiences. The reality is in the secondary school system right now, our guidance counselors, where I know when I was in high school, I went to the guidance counselor and said, what do you think I should do? And they would give me the pamphlets from the universities and they say, well, you could do all these things. And, and, and it's different now because I think our guidance counselors are, are very burdened with the, the drama and trauma of high school and the mental health issues and increased um, uh, um, suicide, everything. It's, it's, it's troubling what our guidance counselors are having to deal with. So I think as a society, we need to create an opportunity for our young people to, to try things out. And I'm, and I'm a very big fan of, um, of students being, or young people being able to travel, which I know there are many barriers to that for some folks, but to, to help them acquire the, the problem-solving skills. And I, and I worry sometimes that um, our students and our youth aren't getting that. So it's the problem-solving skills, resilience, effective communication, that financial literacy piece around entrepreneurship that I mentioned, that um, so we see so many young people drop out even first year post-secondary, not because they couldn't keep up academically, but because they couldn't cope financially. So how do we, we have to impart those skills in them, and I think by giving them opportunities to try new things. So bringing it back to the idea of precarity, do those particular skills insulate you from precarious work, or is it just that you are ready to roll with the punches when you do get into the career, into your career world? I think it's a matter of ready to roll with the punches, but if we can even get to that sort of tipping point where they want the gig economy work, where it becomes an accepted reality, and maybe that they, they see some of the positive benefits of, of that con the new world of work that we are entering, and so that they are more motivated to prepare for it. I still think that there are many um, other youth who will struggle. There will be people with barriers to employment, young people with barriers to employment. We have to find ways to, to address those. And I think it's basically the education system. At the um, Career Counseling Conference, it was Connexus here in Ottawa for three days, over 1,000 people from across Canada and several other countries. The, there was tremendous focus this year, rather than on workforce development, it was very much on K-12, to preparing for career readiness. But there, there was actually a book at the conference on career development for preschoolers. Sort of scary for me, but, um, but at the same time, to, to have that conversation regularly and routinely that every experience a young person has prepares them better for the world of work. So Sunil, you mentioned our social architecture and you know, whether we're prepared for the shocks to the labor force. Can you, can you expand on that? What do you mean by? Sure, and I just want to actually pivot off of what uh, Wendy was just speaking about in terms of the education system as an example of this, and I'll give you a couple of mm -hmm. other examples, but essentially I think we're in a very complacent place in Canada right now that we have a robust social architecture. We're not the United States. We've got all these wonderful programs. Quite honestly, the fact of the matter is we underinvest in social programs compared to other advanced economies, but we seem to have this disconnect between what we think we do and what we're actually doing. And this isn't really an investment issue when we talk about the K-12 education system. I mean, Ontario spends 24, 25 billion dollars a year on education. But the question becomes in areas like this, would you design the education system in Ontario the way it is designed currently if you started from scratch today? And almost across the board, the answer to that would be, oh no, you would not. Uh, I mean, why do students take two and a half months off in the summer? There's very strong research that when they come back from their summer break, they backslide by a month, two months, and they're losing instructional time just catching up from where they were uh, last year. I know there's a reason why that will never change, and I won't say why that will never change, but I'm sure if it starts with you and kind of rhymes with onion, but that's not going to go away. But I mean, if we look at other areas like skills training, for example, I mean, Canada spends one-sixth the amount per capita that a country like Denmark does on active labor market uh, programs. Why is that? Uh, 
I mean, again, there are lots of reasons behind it in terms of our preference for lower tax rates, but if we're entering a world where we need to develop resilient, responsive, adaptive social programs and policies, we can't just assume that what we've got in place now will work well. I mean, employment insurance is a good example. So fewer than 40% of unemployed Canadians today are actually eligible for EI compared to over 80% in the late 1970s because the nature of work that people are doing has changed. They're not eligible for EI. Uh, is that, does that make any sense? No, we probably want to have options around things like wage insurance. Maybe you lose one of your two part-time jobs so we can fill the gap for you for a little bit of time so you don't slip into a really challenging situation where you can't meet your rent, you can't uh, purchase good food for your kids. Um, so I mean, really across the board, we need to start thinking about how can we develop social programs and policies that wrap around people's actual lived life experience. They're not kind of based on bureaucratic imperatives and specific silos of, well, this is how the EI program has always run, that's how it always has to run. That's not really going to work uh, effectively in the future. And if you look at things like skills training, I mean, Wendy mentioned uh, some good positive examples of employers who are helping their workers prepare for the future. but. At a macro level, employers spend 40% less on skills training for their employees uh, per capita today than they did in the early 1990s. Corporate profits have gone up by 77% as a share of GDP since the early uh, 1980s. So corporations are making more money than ever. They're investing less money in their workers than ever before. And government policies and programs aren't actually filling that gap in any real uh, way. So, I mean, if Canada wants to be the global magnet for talent and for companies like Amazon and Google to set up shop uh, here, I mean, we really need to step back and say, what matters to us? It matters that we have highly skilled workers. It matters that when somebody is put out of a job that we support them, and we really need to, to get moving on that as soon as we can. We've been talking a lot in Canada about minimum wage, uh, but... Uh, I take it a lot of precarious workers that doesn't even apply to them, right? They don't, they don't even have access to a minimum wage. So is that another piece of our social architecture that we should be giving some more thought to? Basic guaranteed income is, there's a lot of talk in Canada about that right now. There's a pilot program in Ontario. What do you think, Francis? I think the, 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 the challenges to this or the, sol the potential solution to this problem is not gonna lie with one program or another. I mean, we've already, like Sunil's already talked about challenges related to EI. What if I didn't work enough hours to qualify for EI in my particular region or, or whatever the case may be? You know, minimum wage, same deal. What if I'm not paid by the hour? Can I guarantee that contract workers are, are getting a pay bump because uh, the people who, who, you know, maybe their colleagues who are getting paid by the hour got a pay bump? I, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe, maybe not. I would hope so, but, but maybe not. So, I, I mean, the reality is that the, the, the solution to this is going to cross all these different lines. And, and I think that was probably what was most kind of interesting about this topic is that when, you know, as you're researching it, it crosses so many lines, like so many policy topics. Like you're getting into, obviously, labor market policy. You're getting into social programs. It definitely breaches into the space of like talking about low income. Uh, and, and very possibly, given who it impacts, you're talking about, uh, you know, immigration policy, perhaps. Like, yeah. there's, there's, it crosses so many of those lines, and so the solution is going to, in turn, cross all of those lines as well. Sunil, what do you think about the, the minimum wage issue? In terms sure, of and, and to build on what Francis was saying, I mean, the that's the exact challenge with this. It's kind of one of those classic wicked policy problems where, well, it's federal, it's provincial, yeah. there's yeah. private sector involvement, there's... Uh, labor side involvement. How do you get all those players together thinking about these issues holistically f in a forward uh, looking way? But I mean, I think a basic annual income, I mean, a lot of, there are a lot of advocates for that right now, especially in this age of technological uncertainty. Uh, what if there aren't enough jobs for people anymore? How do we expect them to make ends meet? Well, one answer a lot of people are proposing is a basic annual or a guaranteed annual income. Uh, and I, I mean, I think there is merit to this idea, but the question becomes very quickly, how, if the problem you're solving for is not enough work to go around, that also likely means you're going to see a decline in personal income tax revenue, probably also corporate income tax uh, base as the companies are increasingly offshore and not necessarily uh, located in Canada. So if that's the problem we're trying to solve for, who's actually funding the basic annual income when we're talking about a shrinking tax uh, base that is now all of a sudden expected to provide more and do more uh, for people. So I think there's merit to looking at it and then thinking about it for certain segments of the population, but when we talk about actual universal basic income for 
15, 20, 25, 30% of the population, but it very qu quickly becomes an unaffordable uh, situation. I think the much better strategy for countries like Canada is how do we focus on becoming that talent magnet, that talent attractor, so that companies are coming to set up shop here. We're not the jurisdiction where a large chunk of our labor force is now out of work and we have to worry about how to support them. So I mean, that to me, it should be the race to the top is what we're talking about here, not, uh, well, oh, it's all doom and gloom and we're not gonna be able to do anything. We better implement these kind of pie in the sky social uh, supports to help out. When we talk about guaranteed annual income or, or basic income or whatever term, I mean, there's already a bunch of pilot projects out there that even now, it, it, you know, you start to question the feasibility. Like if someone comes out and says, hey, here's a, here's a, a fiscally feasible approach to, to basic annual income, sure, I, I, would, be, I would be game for that. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it's a challenge to get to that, even now, let alone in the future, if we are talking about a world in which, uh, you know, you have a very, few, a very few capital owners and workers kind of making all the income and everyone else is on basic annual income. I mean, even just the notion of that, imagining that is very dystopic, if you mm -hmm. think about it. Like, they made movies about this kind of stuff. Well, let's hope it goes in the optimistic direction, <laughs> which is that, that there will be new jobs, different jobs, and you mentioned that employers are having to alter or they're having to make themselves more appealing because they need workers. So, Wendy, can you talk a little bit about that? Could there be any pressure exerted by workers knowing that there's shortages to improve labor standards and make sure that benefits are kept in place, for example, and so to, to provide a cushion for some of that precarity? I think so. I think there will be, um, there's already momentum around that, I think, and employers who are engaged and listening are very wise, I think, to be hearing that. But I, I think we will see a shift where quality of life will matter. And, and we've seen it in other countries where work-life balance, and even at our, the conference the last three days here in Ottawa, there was a lot of information about that, that it, a, a positive employer who wants their business to thrive will need to treat their staff really well. And that means flexible work schedules to work around childcare pickup and drop off. It means transportation. Um, you know, in, in particularly in Ontario, we look at um, transportation as a significant barrier for many people, rural and, and urban as well. Um, there's still communities where buses don't run on Sundays and that sort of thing. So I, so I think that the employers are starting, we, we know of companies that have a rent-to-own option for a car. So you start working for them and they, you, the company provides you with a car this, and it has nothing to do, you don't need it. It's not like a traveling salesperson or anything. It's just to get from home to work. And then as they continue to work, they pay off the car and then they, they own it. Creative carpooling options um, and, and allowing people to, to be really present so that if that means that they need to work from 10 till 3 and they are much happier at work, they will stay there. They will stay on. I think for, for many employees, um, I think it's important for employers to realize what's the conversation around the dinner table at night when somebody goes home from work? Do they say, oh, you know what I got to do to work at today, or I, this was really good, or are they moaning and groaning about their boss and complaining about how restricted it was or being fe uh, fearful of getting let go? So I think to, to create that culture, but I do think employees, as we see the demographic shift, their voice will become stronger. Come almost to the end, so I thought I'd just wrap up with the last question to you all, which is, what happens if we do nothing about uh, <laughs> precarious work? We say, well, it's a small percentage of the population. It's really not a big deal. I guess, what, it, what, what does this all lead to? Or what's the overarching problem for Canadian society? That is, that is a big question. <laughs> I, I, I mean, for, for me, uh, my biggest concern is that people who are falling into precarious work, that over time, they become less and less attached to the workforce. Mm. And they become less and less attached to the institutions that you know underlie our social contract, and that social contract starts to deteriorate, which we are seeing in a number of countries. And you know that's a scary thought to think that the the place I grew up in, uh, that I'm proud to, to to live in, is going to turn into something that I, I wouldn't recognize. And, and you know we don't have that kind of shared sense of of, of community. So I mean that's very soft. I, I'm sorry, but no, it's, that's that's kind it's of well that's, said. that's kind of how I feel about it. Is is if we let this if we let this fester, it turns into that. Thank you, Wendy. I think people will fall through the cracks, and I think we'll, we would start to see cycles of uh, people just giving up, and I think they would lose hope. I we'd lose that spirit of your best job is your next job because you learn from everyone that you have, and I think we'd see an increase on all kinds of forms of assistance. But I think people would lose hope. 
And, and I think when that happens and they give up, I think then, then th there's a tremendous cost to that that is probably immeasurable, but uh, I think it would be significant. Thank you. So, yeah. so going back to some of the images, right? We're not as generous as we think when it comes to social programs and policies. If we want to walk the walk that uh, we globally like to talk about how inclusive we are in Canada, we need to actually think about how are we funding these programs? How are we supporting the 25, 30, 35, 40 percent of people who are engaged uh, in precarious work, who are struggling to make ends meet? Uh, and I think there's a big disconnect between policymakers and their lives and what the lived experience of too many Canadians is. And until we bridge that gap and people realize that a lot of Canadians are really struggling, we're uh, just kind of <laughs> aimlessly wandering down this path, which I don't think is healthy for uh, us as a country. You can find Francis Fong's recent article on precarious work on our website. And you might also like to check out our recent feature series on inclusive growth in an age of disruption. If you'd like to connect with our team, you can email us at policyoptions at irpp.org. We're also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Jennifer Ditchburn. Thanks for listening to the Policy Options Podcast.